Greetings, True Believer. I'm Jeff Brzozowski, graphic designer turned podcaster, and this is the What If Comic Book Review Podcast. This podcast was created as a trip down memory lane for fans of the What If comic book series. And for those of you new to What If, it's my hope you'll become a fan and seek out the series for yourself, as well as tuning in to each episode. But first, a little bit about me. My love of comics started with reading my dad's comics up in my grandparents' attic alongside my cousin. We were hooked, and often asked them to take us to the corner store to get the latest issue off the spinner rack. While I enjoy DC, Marvel Comics offered something more. It was the appeal of Stan Lee's bombastic language and excitement, and heroes I could identify with, more so than the isolated Superman and Batman. The Fantastic Four fought with each other between missions. Spider-Man had both money and girl troubles. And the X-Men? Well, they were teenage outcasts. I felt right at home in the Marvel Universe. I quickly immersed myself in their world and stories. I don't remember the first issue of What If I had purchased, but the idea grabbed a hold of me and never let go. I liked how each issue was self-contained, and issues featuring characters or stories I wasn't familiar with, I could easily skip without regret. I began collecting them wherever I could, spinner racks, comic book stores, and conventions, which brings us to today. My goal of this podcast is to provide a synopsis for each issue, my review of that particular story, and to ask the following questions. Does it still hold up? What made it great? Did elements of the story carry over into actual continuity? And last, what if the issue continued? How would I like to see the story evolve? So join me as we take a step into the multiverse and explore the world that is What If. Today's episode, I'll discuss the issue that started it all. What If, number one, from 1977, written by Roy Thomas and the artistic team of Jim Craig, Pablo Marcos, John Costanza, and Janice Cohen. This What If alters the events that took place in 1963's The Amazing Spider-Man number one, in which Spider-Man asks to join the Fantastic Four in hope of extra income since the death of his Uncle Ben. However, they turn him away, stating that they are adventurers and purely a non-profit organization. Peter leaves rejected, and the Marvel Universe moves on. But in this reality, it is Sue Storm who feels sympathy towards him and convinces the rest of the FF to let him join the team. He returns home to Aunt May with the good news of a janitorial job to help him make ends meet, while Aunt May smiles. Such a good boy. Not like that evil spider person the Daily Bugle keeps talking about. Later, the FF hold a press conference to reveal the end of the Fantastic Four, but the debut of the Fantastic Five with their new member, Spider-Man. Amongst the shocked crowd is Daily Bugle publisher J. Jonah Jameson, venting adamantly that their new member is a menace, to which Reed immediately shuts him down and makes Jonah have a sudden change of heart, namely to save face for the media. I just love reading this exchange of dialogue between them. Spider-Man? I know something about him, namely that he's a cheap, brazen crook. Look, it's J. Jonah Jameson, publisher of The Bugle. Come off it, Jameson. What proof do you have? Proof? I'll show you the proof. These headlines, right in my own newspaper. He stands accused of sabotaging our recent space flight in order to make himself a hero by saving the life of my son, astronaut John Jameson. Correct. 
He stands accused, but not convicted. A man is innocent until he's proven guilty, or haven't you heard? And Spider-Man is no longer officially even accused of anything. I've personally vouched for him to NASA, and all the charges have been dropped. What do you say to that, Mr. Jameson? Why, I always say what I always say, that it's always pays to be careful. Actually, I was just playing devil's advocate. Can't choose your heroes too easily, you know. But if NASA has forgiven and forgotten, never let it be said that J. Jonah Jameson isn't man enough to do the same. Who asked you? Matter of fact, that's really why I'm here. To make sure Spidey here got a fair shake. Spidey? In fact, I want to go on record right now as saying that the Daily Bugle hereby endorses Spider-Man. For what? I'm not running for anything. What sounds like you are. Boy, I've never even met this guy before. But my, my spider sense is tingling like mad. Hurry up with that shot, son. Meanwhile, the chameleon's scheme to impersonate Spider-Man comes to a halt due to Reed's phone call to NASA. However, the vulture continues on with his plan to rob a jewelry exchange, only to be foiled by the Fantastic Five, and his wings are burned by the Human Torch. Returning to the Baxter building, Reed reveals a new mission, to explore the mysterious blue area of the moon, but thanks to the recent addition of a fifth member, he wasn't able to make the necessary adjustments in time to accommodate all of them, and asks Sue to stay behind. She reluctantly agrees with new resentment towards Spider-Man. The story spills over into the plot of Fantastic Four 13, the introduction of Red Ghost and his super apes. The FF defeat him and return to Earth, while Reed laments that he wishes Sue had come along, yet immediately decides it was much too dangerous for her, and that the four of them were strong enough to handle it without her. Even in alternate realities, Reed is still Marvel's first jerk. <laughs> Sue is mentally commanded by the Submariner to meet him at the docks on the Lower East Side. Namor, using a hypnofish, encloses Sue inside a bubble and dives into the sea alongside her. However, in the shadows of the docks is none other than the Puppet Master, whose mind controlled Namor to do his bidding to exact revenge on the FF. He sends a hologram of Namor to challenge the team to invade his kingdom to rescue the Invisible Girl. Comics! Namor cordially welcomes the FF to his realm and reveals a trapped Sue at the mercy of a giant octopus. Each member of the team battles Namor, and he eludes their capture, stating he must destroy them all, there's no other choice. Reed questions Namor's motives, and Spider-Man's spider-sense detect he's being played, to which Reed deduces the Puppet Master's involvement. Namor breaks free of his control, just as the octopus escapes his tank, and ultimately destroys the sub containing the Puppet Master. So I assume the Puppet Master dies in this issue. Namor and Reed's egos and their mutual love for Sue escalates. She demands that they stop. She admits a love for both. Yet Reed's actions have shown her that she isn't needed on the team, and she ultimately chooses Namor. Reed is heartbroken. He states she can't possibly survive the ocean depths, to which Namor reveals a machine that could transform Sue into an Atlantean. Johnny pleads, and she states it is her choice. Namor calls her his queen, and destroys the machine, water rushing into the room as she can no longer survive on oxygen. The FF take one last look and escape to the surface. Reed confesses to Ben that although he's lost Sue, perhaps she's better off as a protector between the two worlds, a better fate, 
and he'll try to pretend that that means much more to him than losing the only woman he's ever loved. Spidey laments to the torch that if he hadn't joined, Sue wouldn't have felt upstaged. To which Johnny replies, whatever will be, will be. And Spidey agrees, thus ending the issue. Now onto the review of What If Number 1. Does it still hold up? For introducing an all-new concept to the Marvel Universe, I'd say a resounding yes. The same can be said for the story. The bittersweet tragedy of Sue offering membership, only to have it result in her exit, and the ripple effect from the very beginning. A new relationship with J. Jonah Jameson is formed, Spider-Man's rogue gallery is diminished, and a major shift in the love triangle between Reed, Sue, and Namor. After reading this issue, I immediately want to reread Amazing Spider-Man number 1 and Fantastic Four 13, then compare them all side by side. Over time, I would find myself doing this with several issues of What If and formulating my own stories in my head of how it could continue. Much like the letters page in which fans would propose their ideas for future stories, and in a pre-internet world, I'd have no idea as to what story would come next. Each trip to the comic store was filled with surprise and anticipation. What if continued to be a book I would revisit often in my collection of long boxes? One quick note of what if number one. Uatu explains his role as narrator and mentions a reality in which Reed is turned into the Thing instead of Ben Grimm. Other than a future issue in which the FF all turn into various Thing-style monsters, one of my personal favorites, this is never addressed again, and I'm not sure why, as it would have made for a great what if, in my opinion. As far as I can tell, What If Number One was the only story throughout What If's entire history that continued into other issues. Namely, What If 21, featuring the invisible girl marrying the Submariner and expecting their child. And later, in What If 35, wherein the Fantastic Five fight Doctor Doom and Annihilus. Over the course of the main Marvel Universe, members of the Fantastic Four did come and go, and at one point a new FF team with none of the original members was founded consisted of Spider-Man, Hulk, Wolverine, and Ghost Rider. I never quite understood Ghost Rider. That was an odd choice. Where would this story go if it continued? Having read the Amazing Spider-Man series from 1963, we see Peter Parker and Spider-Man grow into their own, battling his way through his rogues gallery, but in this reality, he battles them alongside the Fantastic Five, so I could see several of the Spider-Villains avoiding them altogether as well as it affecting the relationships of Midtown High, not taking any guff from Flash Thompson, and the staff at the Daily Bugle, possibly pursuing Betty Brant earlier as opposed to brushing her off. I forgot to mention in my recap of What If Number 1 that the FF asked Spider-Man to reveal his secret identity before he joins the team, to which he does. I wonder if he would go public with his identity now that he has the protection of the Fantastic Five. I think being accepted by his superhero peers and showing himself a valuable member of the team, it would give Peter an incredible boost as a former wallflower, as well as his ego. Reed, on the other hand, having lost Sue, would throw himself into his inventions and leading the team. Without Sue to take the edge off, and always following his orders without hesitation, Reed would quickly become a jaded hero, and future battles with Namor would send him over the edge. I don't think much would change with Johnny and Ben, but with very strong personalities between all these members, they would fight more often, more so than fighting the villains. I could definitely see more of a feud between Jonah and Reed than that of Jonah and Peter. How would Spider-Man fare against the coming of Galactus? 
How would Sue, in Namor's reign, develop a peaceful coexistence between Atlanteans and surface dwellers? The possibilities, like what if, are endless. And thus ends episode one of the What If comic book review podcast. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. Be sure to rate and review this podcast and follow my Instagram, What If Comic Book Review, or dropping me a line via email, whatifreviewpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to share viewer mail in a future episode. Excelsior!